Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W.A.B.E. in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The Kathy and Ken Bernhardt Theater for the Very Young is an extraordinary program of the Alliance Theater, and it's returned to live performances with a production of Knock Knock, for children ages two through five and their caregivers. The show is set in a busy apartment building where the residents are getting ready for the holidays and trying to stay warm. Later this hour, we'll hear how the production invites young children to interact with a variety of friends who call the apartment building home as they knock on doors, meet the neighbors, and use their imaginations. First, in 2019, the popular British heavy metal band Def Leppard was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. During their acceptance speech, lead singer Joe Elliott acknowledged the resiliency of drummer Rick Allen. In 1984, Rick lost his left arm in a tragic car accident, but that did not stop him from playing. Rick has been performing with Def Leppard for more than 40 years. In addition to his musical talent, Rick is also a visual artist. In fact, his abstract artwork is built from rhythm. He has a new exhibition on view at the Wentworth Gallery in Phipps Plaza, a show called Wings of Hope 2021. The artist will also appear at the gallery Saturday and Sunday, December 11th and 12th, and joins us now via Zoom. Rick Allen, welcome to City Lights. Thank you very much. What a wonderful introduction. That was really nice. Well, I am so impressed with you, your story, and just delighted to be talking with you. Your story is so very inspiring. Before we talk about your artwork, would you tell us a little bit about your musical journey with Def Leppard? Yeah. I started pretty pretty early on. My parents were huge uh, music fans, 
So there was always uh, very diverse types of music playing in the home, from big band to popular music to rock music to classical music, you name it. It was all there. I remember around about uh, the age of, I must have been about nine, my best friend, he got a guitar for Christmas. I was quite envious, so I went home and asked my parents if I could get a drum kit. And of course, the answer was no, because we, we couldn't really afford it. But about a week later, they came back around and they started saying, well, you know, if you go for drum lessons, then at least if we do get you a drum kit, then, you know, you'll have a basic knowledge of the instrument. So you're not going to lose interest. So I ended up getting a drum kit on layaway, helping out around the neighborhood, around the house and uh, making a bit of extra money. It was fantastic. I, I was able to get a drum kit. And sure enough, you know, I had, I had a basic knowledge of the instrument. So uh, that was kind of the beginning of the whole thing. And am I correct? You were 15 when you began playing with Def Leppard? That's right. I'd been playing with local bands, playing cover songs, playing other people's songs for a f quite a few years. And then at the ripe old age of 14, I started getting restless and I was looking for something else. It just so happened there was an article in the newspaper, the local newspaper called, and it, the heading was Leopard Loses Skins. So uh, I managed to get in touch with the journalist and um, he gave me the information for uh, Joe, uh, Joe Elliott. A couple of days later, I met up with Joe and Steve at a, a local sort of hangout and realized that we'd experienced all the same concerts and probably rubbed shoulders at those same concerts. So there was sort of this common interest in music. And then a few days after that, I went for an audition. Unfortunately, the old drummer came back. He wanted his job back. But there was me and the original drummer and then one other guy. We decided that I would play last, which was good strategy because I was able to learn the songs even better. And then uh, when I got up to play, there were smiles all around the room. And um, I joined Def Leppard uh, around about my uh, 15th birthday. Oh, amazing. I love that punny headline that you saw about uh, <laughs> Def Leppard loses skins. <laughs> that, that's prize worthy. <laughs> Your comeback after this tragic accident is well known and part of what's been inspiring for so many people. How did you learn to play again with one arm? It was less about relearning and more about rechanneling information that was already in my head. It seemed as though, you know, when I got back on my feet, there was a little bit of information from my left hand that went to, you know, the three limbs that were left. So it almost seemed like some sort of ancient response that allowed me to express myself. Yeah, I found that I, you know, I was always a soccer player when I was a kid. And 
I was always very right footed. But then after the accident, as if by magic, I was able to kick with my left foot almost as well as my right. So that led me to believe that there was something more going on in my brain in, term, in terms of neural activity than I, I was aware of. So for this wonderful reason, I was able to actually play quite proficiently without really learning anything. Yeah, the, the learning curve took over, you know, a few years after that initial response. And then I was able to take my knowledge of three limb drumming to, to another level. But that was that was a more conscious effort. Oh, but that's fascinating about the neurological memory or whatever neurons were left. So your left arm, which you lost, that was your dominant arm? No, it wasn't it wasn't dominant, but the other three limbs seemed to naturally pick up sort of the essence of what my left arm used to do. So there was a little bit of that essence in the three limbs that were left over. Oh, amazing. Now, I am intrigued with how you began your abstract artwork with a rhythmic bassist. I know there are mixed metaphors. I know that visual artists often talk about harmony or you know, art historians mention harmony. The painter Kandinsky, a lot of musical terms are attributed to his style and his work. How did the rhythm and your drumming manifest itself in your painting? It actually started out as a long exposure photography what we would do is we'd set the camera up in a dark room and then I would sit behind the drum kit with a stick that lit up. So uh, every time I hit one of the drums or one of the cymbals, the stick had these LED lights inside the stick. So the sticks would glow. And obviously with a long exposure photograph, that would excite the whole idea of being able to paint in midair. Yeah, we came up with these incredible images. And in many cases, the imagery, it had some sort of relationship to some of the songs that I chose to play, which at the time were, uh, were Def Leppard songs. It was interesting to see how an intention could manifest in a photograph. And then what I would do, I would take those images and I would print those onto canvas and then further enhance the imagery that we discovered. Oh, wow. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights, speaking with Def Leppard drummer and visual artist Rick Allen. You, in fact, had been a photographer for many years before you took up painting, correct? It was more about, you know, just being, being a kid at school and being able to immerse myself in painting. 
I think I got more paint on the floor and the ceiling than anywhere else. <laughs> but I really enjoyed the activity. It, it just sort of it just engulfed me. It was it was something where I was completely in the moment with it. And then I think round about the age of seven, my grandfather bought me my first camera and I took up photography and started to uh, experiment with man manipulating light. And then, of course, it's well documented that, you know, I, I joined Def Leppard at the age of 15. So then, you know, music kind of consumed me at that point. You know, I still kept going with my photography and, and just abstract art in general. But it wasn't really until my youngest daughter was born 11 years ago. And it wasn't long before we discovered painting together. Oh. Yeah, which, which was really, it was really nice because it kind of reignited my passion for art. And it was a great thing that we could do together to connect. Also, we found it very therapeutic, or I found it very therapeutic for myself. You know, uh, not too many people know this, but I, I suffer with uh, PTSD. And, and I find that music and art are actually really uh, healing, very uh, therapeutic activities. Is the PTSD connected to the accident? Yeah, it was, um, it was very traumatic. In fact, I rolled my car and um, the seatbelt came undone. And it was actually the seatbelt that took my arm. Oh. And I, as the car rolled, I left through the sunroof and landed sort of 150 yards away in a field. And the thing that actually saved my life was the fact that I didn't go unconscious. I, I remained conscious. Even though it was hazy, I think the fact that my body tensed was the thing that, you know, allowed me to survive. Well, and I guess remaining conscious, though, is what imprinted the horror of it that is at the basis of the PTSD. How wonderful that the art with your daughter has been so therapeutic. Can you tell us about the various series that are on display at the Wentworth Gallery here in Atlanta? Yeah, the... You know, I come up with new names depending on the time that we find ourselves in. I did a piece a long time ago called Wings of Hope. I just felt like it was very fitting. We're in this, this terrible situation with this worldwide pandemic. And I feel, you know, Wings of Hope is something that we, we all need at the moment. We all need something to look forward to, hopefully you know, with that in mind, we can uh, we can somehow put this behind us in the not too distant future. And then in amongst uh, Wings of Hope, I've been doing the Legends series, which is uh, paintings of people that really inspired me through the years. Musicians, singers, drummers, you name it. But unfortunately, people that aren't with us anymore, people that, uh, you know, that are past. But the fact still remains, you know, these incredible, incredible artists inspired me probably to the point where I wouldn't necessarily be doing what I'm doing today if it wasn't for 
the likes of Jimi Hendrix or John Lennon or, you know, just all these incredible, if you, if, you know, if you go to um, wentworthgallery.com, you, you're able to see more of the legends that I've painted over, over a long period of time. Uh, Janis Joplin is another one. Johnny Cash is another one. I mean, all these incredible, incredible artists. And, you know, they're all responsible for me, you know, doing what I do today. I noticed there's a mix of different religious icons, angels, images of Buddha. What do these signify for you? Uh, really just life experience and experiencing different points of view. You know, I spent a long time in India. I went like four times in four years. I spent my time working with the monks in an ashram uh, down there. You know, I didn't particularly like everything that I saw about myself, but as I say, you know, that's part of the totality of the human condition. Uh, there is good and bad. We have you know, potential to be our absolute best expression, but we also have the potential to show our worst expression. I think all these different belief systems, they inherently have, you know, they have everything. They have the good and they have the bad. So it's my attempt at really understanding and experiencing uh, different points of view and bringing that into my own life experience. Do you consider yourself spiritual? Yes. I love the community of church. I'd love to be able to experience that with my family. But I find that sometimes religion doesn't necessarily teach the idea of it being an inside job. You know, the idea that they kind of tell you to get in the boat and mm. instead of getting in the boat and sort of, you know, rowing to the other side of the, of the river or whatever the, the metaphor is, you know, you sort of stay in the boat and stay in the middle of the river, which, which is great. But I think, I think it runs deeper than that. I think there's a lot more to us as human beings and our spirituality than meets the eye. So that is one of the reasons why I think it's an inside job. I think it's it's something that is, at a certain point, we're on our own, you know? Yeah. Another image that intrigued me in looking over your artwork was the handprint. What can you tell us about that? Is it your hand? It is my hand. Early on, in my, uh, my hospital stay, I got a really bad infection in my right arm, uh, which is the, the arm that, was, that I, I was able to uh, ultimately keep. But the infection got so bad that there was actually a chance that I might lose my right arm oh. because I, I broke it so badly. We had to wait for the infection to clear up before we could heal the, any of the, the breaks in, in the bone. So, you know, I, I, I was just really brave. I, I said to the nurse, I said, you know, don't worry about the pain. I said, let's just really, let's get this, you know, this infection cleared up. Just do what you need to do to try to make that happen. 
so between us, you know, we, we, we really worked on that every single day. You know, thank goodness I was able to keep my right arm. But what came out of that was this immense feeling of gratitude that I was able to uh, keep my arm and I was still able to express myself, uh, whether that be musically or in an artistic way or just you know, basic things that I needed to, to live my life. So there's this sense of gratitude when I wake up where I'm just really thankful that, that I was able to, to keep my right arm. Hence the handprint in your painting. Yeah. <laughs> Rick, you and your wife, Lorne Monroe, I read you created a nonprofit organization, the Raven Drum Foundation. That's right. What sort of programs does the foundation offer? Well, it's changed. We, we work with different uh, demographics, or we have over the years. It's basically anybody that's experienced some sort of extreme trauma, you know, that may be suffering from PTSD or from TBI, you know, a lot of people associate trauma with combat, but in reality, there are lots of parts of the population that are traumatized, whether that be car accidents, sports injuries, abusive uh, relationships, alcoholic parents, just all kinds of ways as human beings that we can be traumatized. So through the years, we work with many different parts of the population whether that was, you know, incarcerated youth or women's shelters. We tried to help as many people as we could. But then in 2006, I visited uh, Walter Reed Army Medical Center in the D.C. area. It really opened my eyes to the amount of trauma and suffering that was going on because of combat and war, basically. It was a wonderful meeting because, you know, they all felt as though they knew me because of my celebrity. So there was a trust. There was a mutual trust. And they were really inspired by me. But what they didn't realize is how much I was inspired by them. So when I got back to my hotel, I called my wife and I said, you know, it would be really nice if we could refocus and really focus on the plight of our veterans or our wounded warriors. And that's really when we, we concentrated more on what was going on at the time, and that was trauma from combat. Rick Allen, I think you ennoble us all. Thank you so very much for sharing your experiences, for talking about your art, and I saw that Def Leppard's first stop of the 2022 tour will be in Atlanta. How cool is that? That is very cool. Yeah. <laughs> I know you're told this often, probably all the time, but you are truly amazing. And I thank you for letting us share this part of your life. That's fantastic. Well, I am a work in progress, but, uh, you know, we're getting there. <laughs> Rock and Roll Hall of Famer and visual artist Rick Allen. His exhibition, Wings of Hope, 
2021 is on view at the Wentworth Gallery at Phipps Plaza. Alan will be at the gallery this Saturday and Sunday. More information will be available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll find out who's there in Knock Knock, the new production by the Theater for the Very Young at the Alliance. You are tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. This year marks the 10th anniversary of the Kathy and Ken Bernhardt Theater for the Very Young at the Alliance Theater. They are celebrating with a production of Knock Knock and a return to the Selig family Black box theater. This show is ideal for audiences ages two to five, along with their caregivers. And joining me now via Zoom to discuss this holiday tradition, director Samantha Provenzano, Chris Moses, director of education and associate artistic director of the Alliance, with scenic designer and creator of Tiny Doors ATL, Karen Anderson Singer. Welcome back to City Lights. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Mars. Chris, will you please give us some background on how the theater for the very young came into being 10 years ago? 10 years ago, this was simply an idea. There had been several organizations overseas that had been producing work for very young audiences. And two Alliance employees, Carol Jones and Rosemary Newcott, went to a festival in South Korea and saw some work and were really intrigued by this and thought we could try this out at our theater. And that's what we did. We tried with one show inspired by Child's Garden of Verses. And it was such an emotionally rewarding and powerful experience that it became clear that we had to do more of this work. But the thing is, Lois, that it's, you know, nonprofit theater makes zero sense as a business model in the best case scenario. 
But when you were talking about limiting an audience to 50 people maximum, because you want everyone to have this fully interactive experience, it's almost too much to conceive of how you can do that. But we ventured on and we started doing show after show. And miraculously, we had some funders who also saw the merit of this. And I have to always, and every time I get to talk about this program, thank Kathy and Ken Bernhardt for stepping up, recognizing the value and endowing this program and allowing us to continue to do this. And now here we are 10 years on, we've developed 21 original productions, which is mind boggling. Every Atlanta public school pre-K student gets to come and see one of these shows. It is is just part of their growing up experience here in Atlanta. And it's now a core part of who we are at the Alliance Theater. And, And I think one of the differentiating factors that there are several regional theaters who who may send shows on to Broadway, but there are none who are sending shows to Broadway and creating work for babies at the same time (laughs) with the same level of expertise, you know? It is so impressive that this is a priority for the Alliance and that the Bernhardts endowed the program. Past offerings by the Theater for the Very Young have been open to infants. Why did you want to target this production for ages two and older? COVID. (laughs) The work is designed, and what makes it so special is that we really want unfettered participation from the audience. So we want to allow them to meet this work on their own terms, to roam around the stage freely, and fully interact with the experience. In fact, that's when it's normally transcendent. But this audience, this is the most vulnerable audience possible. You know, they cannot get vaccinated yet. So we really kicked off the season with virtual programming. And when it became clear that we might be able to safely return in person, we decided the only way we could safely do that is if we made masks mandatory And that was the youngest age possible that the CDC recommends wear a mask. So we had to, and it breaks my heart because zero to two-year-olds would love the work that Sam is creating in that rehearsal hall. But this one will have to to limit that age to two to five-year-olds. But hopefully come spring and next year, we'll be back to that zero to five group. Let's hope. Sam, can you give us a synopsis of Knock Knock? So Knock Knock started as an idea between um, Olivia Aston Bosworth and myself, and we were thinking, gosh, what would be so special about a winter show for the Alliance's Theater for the Very Young slot? And we thought about, like, winter is so special because we get to bring the warmth and light that's usually enjoyed outside, inside, and celebrate that with our families. So we thought about where do we find a lot of warmth and light and we thought about homes and we thought about where are there a lot of homes and we landed on the apartment building. So as you and your little one come to the theater, you will be checked in in a miniature leasing office (laughs) and you are moving, (laughs) you're moving into the apartment building for one winter night and you will experience the three floors of the apartment building and the different tenants that live there. And there are going to be moments of joy and a little bit of chaos and um, a lot of celebrating. Oh, wow. Now, not to give any spoilers, but can you highlight some of the building's residents the children will meet? Yes. 
<laughs> on the first floor, you're going to you're going to meet a, a guy who just moved in very similar to all the tenants. And he hired a mover that was maybe more than he expected. You're going to meet a dad and his little daughter who is a ballerina. And um, you're going to meet some incredible party throwers. Oh, and these are all humans. <laughs> these are not puppets. No, these are two humans playing all the roles. Wow. What qualities or characteristics did you have in mind for the neighbors who live in this apartment building? Well, Olivia and I sat down and thought about who are all the characters in real apartment buildings. <laughs> um, so who have we encountered over the years? Yeah, and started there about like who would be interesting on stage, who, what situations are funny in apartment buildings or interesting to interact with in apartment buildings. And are the, the neighbors from diverse backgrounds? I would say so. There is one character you'll meet that is a bit of a surprise. So they all, they, all the people in the apartment buildings are very different. Okay. Karen, you are the set designer for this production. And I have to say, I think that was an inspired choice. As the artist and creator of Tiny Doors ATL, were you expected to create this set on a miniature scale? You know, the set design, I'll tell you, first of all, that when I saw an email that said, do you want to work with us on a play called Knock Knock? <laughs> I just lit up. I couldn't have been more excited. And, you know, I was up for any kind of adventure that they wanted to bring my way. And we ended up doing a set that is miniature and also an immersive hallway that is much larger. One of the doors is larger than life-size all the way down to a tiny door. Ooh. So it's all scales at play. It sounds a little bit like being John Malkovich. I mean, it could be. <laughs> I think it's, you know, that's a fun way to think about all the different ways that we interact, yeah. you know, and that we, we come to a moment and it can be through doors big and small. Would you describe the appearance of the set? Yeah, the set is a lot, you know, Sam was describing the way that we move through the apartment building from one floor to the next, and there are three. So the set itself is laid out like a brownstone. It's about three and a half feet tall. I guess it would be a blue stone since it's blue, but it comes down from the ceiling and it has the three different sets that each one lights up individually to illustrate to the audience what floor we're on. And we were hoping that that would be a good way to show very young people, you know, where we are in this moment. So you'll see that the windows are decorated and try to give the feel of each of the residents of that floor. Oh, wow. They have these visual indicators. How do the children interact with the actors in this production? The challenge, as I said earlier, you know, these shows are designed for completely open interaction normally. So from the onset, Sam had to really think creatively about how to encourage our, our tiny audience to stay in place, which is not something we normally do. But she so beautifully designed a show where the actors are able to come out and meet the audience rather than the audience getting up and wandering through the play space. But at every step of the way, we're constantly thinking about 
what are the moments that they can participate in and also move the action forward because more than any other form of theater I've seen, the audience is a critical part of this process. It just does not work without them in the room. So they're still very much invited in in a very generous way, but it just looks a little bit different. And Sam, I don't know if you wanna give any examples of what that might look like. Yeah, so we're trying to set it up so that the caregiver and the young person have everything they need around them to have an interesting and engaging and welcoming experience right where they are. Or I don't know if this is giving too much away, but the other part is they're invited to find their own apartment when they come into the black box space. And that is in the form of 10 little rugs around that are all spaced apart safely. And so the caregiver and the little one wander around and pick Pick their perfect apartment based on their, you know, their aesthetics they're drawn to. And so the instruction there is to, you know, stay in your apartment um, while you're enjoying the show. And then as things come out to you, we hope that it's a, enough structure and touchable things that the, the interactivity will be enjoyable from your area. I think that a really exciting element for me was when they said, what if the audience could knock on a tiny door to go in between each level? So there are three individual tiny doors that the actors bring around and that every viewer, every participant gets to knock on <laughs> the tiny doors to help the play transition between scenes. Oh, I love it, Karen. I had to, I had to stop for a moment when you were saying the Alliance contacted you and asked if you would be interested in working on a production called Knock Knock. That line from Jerry Maguire, the famous line that's paraphrased <laughs> now, I, I, I imagine you're saying you had me at Knock Knock. <laughs> you had me at Knock Knock is exactly right. That's exactly how it went. I saw those words and I said, well, there goes my November. I will be with the Alliance all month making this happen. So I'm really, really grateful that they brought me in. Thank you to Chris and Sam for that. During the holidays last year, many of us had to shelter in place, quarantine, or celebrate in very small circles. How does this production showcase a more normal experience of rekindling friendships and celebrating with others. Yeah, I think it's it showcases community in, in this very real sense that I'm reminded of every day in rehearsal where I see two people who are not in the same household playing together and, and sharing in this joy and fun and like true play where I'm I just really missed that in the pandemic when we were, you know, in our homes trying to make theater, trying to make art. And, you know, we did that to some success, but it's just, yeah, it's so refreshing to see two humans playing in real space. Oh, that's beautiful. Chris, where do you see the theater for the very young going in the next 10 years? I have some pretty big dreams about where I hope we'll go. One, what Sam said, I mean, we can't overestimate just the power of returning to in-person work. But while we were forced to think of other ways to still tell stories and reach this audience, we did land on some really fun things that I think we'll continue doing. We have an animated short piece that's coming out about the Curious Cardinal. 
It's a collaboration with Fernbank Museum, and it takes place in the forest behind Fernbank and follows little Cece, this tiny cardinal who uh, meets all of these new friends in the wilderness throughout the four seasons of the year. And a piece like that, I feel like, can really open up access in interesting ways. So one of the things I'd love to see is a continued collaboration with, with PBS Atlanta, who has agreed to show some of this work on public access TV, which removes some barriers to participation for a lot of people. Five years ago, we made the critical decision to make these shows free for the target audience. So zero to five-year-olds come to all of these shows for free. And, and since that time, in five years, 30,000 little ones have come and seen this work. When you think about there's only 50 total bodies in a room at a time. So I think for the next 10 years, I want to figure out how do we make this a birthright for every family that, you know, the first year of their lives, they get a full subscription to every show we do at the Alliance Theater. And it just becomes part of what it means to grow up in Atlanta, that you have these theatrical experiences that are designed specifically for you. That feels like it's just something we need to do. There's a responsibility now that we've built this program. But to do that would require running these shows pretty much all year round, which I think is another great dream. It would give more work to actors. It would allow people to always know that there's something special happening on the Woodruff campus for them any time of the year. Chris Moses, the Alliance Theatre Director of Education and Associate Artistic Director, Director Samantha Provenzano, and scenic designer Karen Anderson Singer, the creator of Tiny Doors ATL, the Theater for the Very Young's production of Knock Knock is on stage in the Selig Family Black Box Theater at the Alliance Theater through December 23rd. More information will be on our website, wabe.org org slash city lights. Coming up, a collaboration between two iconic Atlanta organizations, Living Walls and Adult Swim. You are tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. With its enormous viewership and widespread appeal to young adults, Adult Swim knows the power of visual art to reach a large audience. As the adult program block of the Cartoon Network, Adult Swim mainly airs original and acquired animated and live action series. So their collaboration with Living Walls for a mural series seems ideal. Earlier this year, I spoke via Zoom with Adult Swim's production manager, Bridget Kimbrough, Living Walls co-founder and executive director Monica Campana and participating muralist Yusli Maturin. Kimbrough began by explaining how the partnership between Adult Swim and Living Walls came about. 
So the project in general came about as a response to the acknowledgement of racial injustice that surfaced last summer. And with an, our network, we were looking at ways to organically address it. Um, as a brand, we've always stood for the principles of creative freedom and elevating the voice of artists. So looking at the platforms we had available, it was an organic solution for us to bring in local Black talent to create murals in public spaces and living walls with their reputation and uh, the reason that they exist as a nonprofit to bring about social change was just a perfect partnership for us. Monica, did you want to add? For us, uh, when we got the first communication from Adult Swim with their interest in doing this project, for us it was it was important to become a partner. It was important for us to support Adult Swim in this effort as we are looking for more, especially local companies, to invest in our local artists, uh, in our Black artists. Bridget, did Adult Swim give the artists any guidelines or ideas that they wanted for each of them to include in their creations? Uh, We didn't, um, and we don't. In our initial discussions within the creative group, we found that the only way we could do this would be to open up our platforms um, to create the space for these artists and then get out of the way and let them bring their voices forward um, and say what it is they wanted to say. So there are some structures as far as what you can do in public spaces that go beyond us. But other than that, we want to choose artists we think have something to say and then let them say it. You, Slee Mathurian, you are one of those artists. Would you describe your piece, Spread Love, Not Hate? Yes. So at the time when um, I got the opportunity, I was floored. Couldn't believe I got that email. Uh (laughs) During that time, um, the George Floyd case was happening. And also there was a lot of... um, hate crimes happening to the Asian community. With my work, I'm greatly influenced by what's happening around me in the now. And that was pretty much what was on my brain that week when I got the call to create a piece. And I wanted to create a piece that focused on Black and Asian culture and wanted to highlight how beautiful the cultures are and just to spread the message of, you know, spread love, not hating, especially with everything that was happening to both cultures. That was really important to me. The mural has wonderfully vivid colors. Why did you use different hues of pink and tan for the pigment of the woman's skin? Um, Well, for my work, I do a lot of like monochromatic, kind of like a monochromatic style into my work. I wanted to highlight all the tones that were in the garment on on her face and the model is actually a musician she's an amazing guitarist that i was able to to use for the work so i'm glad i had a chance to do that can you tell us who she is april k usually have you ever created a mural before i have created um smaller murals i think the biggest mural created was probably like 20 25 feet this was like double that size, triple the size. 
So uh, fear of heights cannot be a factor for artists in creating these murals. No, not at all. Not at all. How long did it take you to complete the mural? It took us about six to seven days in total, including with the outline and priming. So about seven days, about a week. I was watching some of your TikToks and saw you have a handy trick for removing paint from concrete. Would you, uh, you yeah. saw that. <laughs> Would you tell us what you use and, and how you discovered it? I don't know what happened. Some paint fell and I was like, oh my God, we need to remove the paint. <laughs> I had a guy's number I was going to call just in case, but um, I had Gatorade there and um, we started using the Gatorade because we didn't have any water and it actually took it all off. So I thought it was funny, so I made a TikTok for it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yet another use. Now, I think the company should, you know, give you some kind of royalty for this discovery. Bridget or Monica, who were the other artists selected? The other artists are E.L. Chisholm. She has a mural on the West Side Beltline and Emmanuel Rivas, has a mural in the Decatur Square in downtown Decatur. And can you describe their murals? Erica's mural that's on the Beltline, it must be also the largest mural she's ever painted. It was, it's actually one of the largest murals we have painted. Hers is, it's called Reflection. It is about how she, I don't really want to speak for her. The statement can be found in our Instagram, but it's really, it's, pretty much about how she sees herself as a Black woman, how other people see her and the expectation uh, that the world has for her as a Black woman. It has multiple portraits of a figure that doesn't necessarily have a gender, but it is very feminine, it's masculine, it's, it's all of us. It is it's a representation of, uh, I would say, Black excellence, and it's right on the west side trail on the Beltline. And Emmanuel's mural is right on the Decatur Square. You will not miss it. And his work is quite surrealist. He reminds me a lot of Dali. Uh, and his mural is about women, the women in his family. There's a whole poem that he wrote on the side of the mural. It's about love and loss and the important women that grew up with them, that raised them. Both murals are quite personal. And I think they're quite relevant as well as to young Black artists wanting to take up space in our streets, in the public space in Atlanta. The first round of artists selected earlier this year, Jasmine Nicole, Sofa Hood, and William Downs, painted their murals on the Plaza Theater, Decatur Square, and on Edgewood Street in the old Fourth Ward. What kind of feedback have you received since their artwork went up? It seems like everyone is enjoying the experience. Uh, and then from the community, I think that people can see, you know, the message that each of them are trying to bring with their work. And again, it's all about Black empowerment, creating visibility for uh, our Black community and and also staying very relevant to the times. I think the reception has been wonderful and I think that people can tell that there's a lot of care and intention with the artists that are being selected and the messages that they have in their murals. Bridget, what have you heard? 
I mean, I think Monica speaks well to the fact that there are two experiences. There's the experience of the artist and then the experience of the viewer. And uh, what I have gotten the most feedback on is the experience of the artist. It bled from the first round into this round, the excitement of speaking with Usley and Erica and Manny when we first kicked this off, their awareness of the project just brought an energy to it that was great. And it is a very family building experience. I would say each of these installations and uh, the weeks prior that myself and uh, our producer, our, our art director, Trey Wadsworth spend with each artist for a few weeks developing the piece. In the arc of it, it's probably about six to eight weeks of, of constant communication and work. And the reward is, it's very community building within us. And I think that that shows as well as the diversity of the types of artists that we're bringing out and the diversity of communication and experience that the viewer is getting. Adult Swim's production manager, Bridget Kimbrough, Living Walls co-founder and executive director, Monica Campana, and participating muralist, Yusli Mathurin. You can listen to this interview in its entirety on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., the Alliance Theater's annual production of A Christmas Carol has returned to Atlanta. And we'll hear from director Leora Morris with set designer Todd Rosenthal. City Light's senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.